This morning we're going to do a little bit, something a little bit different. You're going to get a mini-sermon before you get the main sermon. Before we get into our core liturgy, I want to address a topic that is near and dear to the heart of this church. About five years ago, we were introduced to a group called International Justice Mission. They're a nonprofit agency that works with lawyers, law enforcement, churches, and leaders throughout the world to make an impact toward the goal of ending slavery and human trafficking. Many of you know them. The reason that we're not spending the full service on this topic today, as we have done in the past, is because so many of you are well aware of IJM and have been so faithful to support them as freedom partners, and I thank you for that. We as a church also give to them monthly to support the work that they're doing. But as for some of you uh, who are new to the church, we want uh, those of you who have not supported IJM in the past to be called today to become Freedom Partners. Churches all over the country and across the world are engaging in what's called Freedom Sunday today, where we join together and unify in our call to work to end slavery. For many of us in the Western world, we put on our blinders and forget that the problem of slavery and human trafficking still very much exists. And it exists to a greater degree according to the numbers than possibly ever before. That's hard to believe, but here are some statistics that back that belief. Over 40 million people are held in slavery today. As we sit here, 40 million people are enslaved. One in four of those slaves is a child. Can you imagine if our children were locked in servitude? Human trafficking generates $150 billion a year. Two-thirds of that, the majority of that, is from sexual exploitation. A child goes missing every 12 minutes in India, and 50% have not been found. Can you imagine how quickly our church of 80, 90 children would empty out if every 12 minutes one of them went missing? And so if you're unaware of this epidemic, I want to show you a short video that describes one of the many areas in which IJM fights to free the enslaved. In Ghana, right uh, south of Burkina Faso, where we do work, IJM fights to free children from the slave trade on fishing boats on Lake Volta. So let's take a look here. Children as little as three, four, five, six are being used for fishing. They would have gone through some kind of abuse, trauma. The boatmasters push the children to dive deep into the lake and untangle the nets. The whole place is dark. They can't even judge. Have I gone six feet? Have I gone 15 feet? They just keep going until they get to where the net is. They realize that they are too far down to come up immediately for air die in the process. The Bible does not allow us to look at our neighbor going through pain and turn a blind eye to it. Jesus went out of his way so many times to help the blind, the sick. So if you're a Christian, you ask yourself, what would Jesus Christ have done in this situation? Because there is no way Jesus is going to sit down and allow the vulnerable to suffer. He would certainly stand up and do something for them. You go back to visit them in the shelter and we are like, oh boy, I can't imagine that this is the same child I rescued a month, two months, a year ago. You see them and you are amazed. (laughs) 
besides the call from basic human decency that begs action of all of us, there is a common call that we must all hear and answer as citizens of the kingdom of righteousness and justice. At the core of the biblical narrative, we find that one of the basic characteristics of the God that we serve, the one true creator God, is the heart of bringing freedom to enslaved people. The roots of our Christian God are centered in the Hebrew understanding of the Exodus God. Long before the cross of Calvary, he was known as the Exodus God. And in the Exodus, the creator God heard the cry of his people who had been enslaved for 400 years, and he answered them. He delivered them from a kingdom of pagan revelry and worship so that they might be free to worship him. This is what the book of Exodus says of the character of God and his love towards his people. Exodus 3, 7 through 9 says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold... The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Those children, and many like them, are crying out for people to bring them freedom, and God is calling his church, his incarnate body on this earth, to act on his behalf. It is this view of the Exodus God that Jesus calls upon in his work to free all those who would come to him to gain freedom from enslavement to the kingdom of darkness and to our own sin. In Luke 4.18, Jesus said this, talking about himself, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And so, as followers of the Exodus God, the God that sent his Son to free us from the kingdom of darkness, we cannot simply accept our freedom, our blessing, and God's grace and turn a blind eye to others who are oppressed and robbed of their innocence. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't have a huge medium by which I can engage human trafficking. As a church in the community of Salem, there are a lot of opportunities, but there are not a lot of opportunities in this one area. But that does not mean we stop helping, just because it's not right in front of our face every day. What IJM gives us is an opportunity to partner with a group that does what God calls us to do. And, and we can know that while we are asleep or while we are doing our jobs, that they are working 24-7 to free the oppressed. International Justice Mission is a group that has been wildly successful in bringing freedom to slaves and redemption to governments and nations. They work in 19 communities around the world. They have trained more than 67,000 justice system officials since 2012. And they have brought more than 1,600 convictions against slave owners, rapists, and other criminals who take the innocence of children. Best of all, they have rescued more than 49,000 people that bear the image of God from oppression and slavery. So let me introduce you to IJM. <laughs> slavery's end. Each morning we rise. 
wide awake and filled with purpose. We fight fearlessly in the name of justice because we believe in a better world and a God who moves us to make it so. We are the church. Beyond a building or a day of the week, relentlessly defending freedom. Not for some distant future, but for today. So that this may be the last generation to be owned, sold, or ignored in their suffering. And though we may be free, we are tied to those still held in bondage. And we will not go away until lives communities, and nations are transformed until all countries protect all of their citizens. So, each day we rise again, knowing we are slavery's end. And we will never be free. Now, we are, we are a church that teaches and knows that this will not fully happen until Jesus comes back. But bad eschatology, bad end times prophecy has left the church in apathy for too long. And so we realize and recognize and command that we are to engage this problem, not sit back and wait for Jesus to return. Because if he returns in two days, we know the problem is solved. But if he decides to wait and more and more children die in that lake, and more and more people are prostituted, then we will be held responsible. We are God's people, and we are called to do something. Today, I'm asking you to support the work of IJM to free the captives around the world in the name of Jesus. I'm asking you to become a freedom partner by agreeing to give $24 a month to support the work that they do. You can sign up through their website here at this uh, link, or, or this uh, website up on the board, or you can grab an envelope from the back table and sign up there. We'll remind you during the second set of worship, during our response to the Word of God. And uh, Sarah Campbell will be back there at the back table in the foyer for you to be able to sign up. Either way, join us as a church. Join my wife and I and many others as we support IJM to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke and let the oppressed go free so that they might experience the redemptive character of our God and learn what love is practically so that they can hear it spiritually through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's all stand now, and we're going to hear from the Word of God in the book of Deuteronomy as Kelly and Tyler come up and read to us from our passage today in Deuteronomy 31. A reading from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel... And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og. 
the kings of the Amorites and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, At the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting, that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of clouds stood over the entrance of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and that they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give them. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, 
you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Lord, we stand in awe of who you are. Although no man has ever seen you, we see your fingerprints in the creation around us. In the vastness of the galaxies overhead, we see you. In the power of the crashing waves, we hear you. In the sweetness of the incoming harvest, we taste your goodness. Your faithfulness is without blemish. You have demonstrated your covenantal love and faithfulness from generation to generation. God, we pray, forgive us of our apathy. Lord, we confess that as a church, we have turned a blind eye to the injustices in our midst. We have failed to defend the poor, the widow, and the orphan when it was in our power to do so. We've supported systematic oppression and the tarnishing of your image carried by our brothers and sisters because of our self-righteousness, our comfort, and our belief that someone else should do the work of justice and righteousness. We repent for the attitudes that we've held toward people who don't look, think, and act like we do. Lord, help us to remember that the other is also created in your image and worthy of our love. Remind us of your love for us. Even while we were yet unrepentant sinners, you loved us. God, we pray that you would empower organizations like IJM to carry out your works of justice. We pray for the workers that are in countries like India and Ghana. We pray that you would protect them physically as they remove people from violent enslavers. We pray that you would protect them spiritually as they face heartbreaking circumstances that don't make sense. We pray that you would protect them emotionally as they connect with vi victims of justice and show them your love. We pray that the faithful and generous partners would continue to answer the call of supporting those on the front lines of the work you are doing to set your captives free. As we study your word today, may we hold your scripture in the highest regard. May we trust what it says. May we learn and grow in the discipline of submission to godly leadership. May we be convicted and encouraged to continue pressing forward toward the righteousness and justice you desire for us. No matter how much we try, we could never exhaust your love, God. And for that, we are thankful. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When we are young, most of us see nothing but untapped possibility. We gaze at the horizon of the future and all we see is blue sky because the sun still sits high above us and allows us to see the infinite possibilities of what lies ahead. As a man dead center in midlife, just having turned 40, not yet hitting a crisis, praise the Lord, I know that the sun is still not in a position to settle below the horizon of my life, Lord willing. He's the one that counts my days. But I am beginning to see and think about seasons of life that I never thought would come. No longer am I thinking about the degrees I need to attain or the church I want to someday plant. By God's grace, the church is planted and growing with health and strength. By God's grace, I am in the last year of my graduate degrees, and if he is willing, I will finish the year without dying. 
And so I've begun to think about what legacy I want to leave because I have seen in the biographies of great men and women and in the lives of those that I hope to emulate that building a legacy does not start in the decade before you step off this earth. It begins much, much earlier in life. As we come to the close of Deuteronomy, we see Moses putting in place the finishing touches on his legacy. He was a man who had, by this point in his life, had three separate lives rolled into one. For the first 40 years of his life, he had been a man in the courts of Pharaoh, being raised to be royalty. But around 40, he learned of his Hebrew roots, saw the pain of his people, and acted out in wrath, murdering an Egyptian slave master. He ran away to Midian, and for the next 40 years of his life, he was a shepherd there, shepherding and tending his father-in-law's flock. And then at 80, he was summoned by God's voice through the burning bush to become the shepherd of God's people in the midst of the exodus. But after the failing of the people to trust God's provision and protection, Moses had to lead the people of Israel for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness. And now at last, as the people are about to go over the river Jordan to conquer the promised land, Moses speaks his final speech to the people, his final sermon, if you will finalizing his legacy and setting up the people for covenant continuity and covenant remembrance. And so this is our goal today, to look at what Moses does to establish covenant continuity and remembrance. So often in bad theology, we separate more so than we should and distinguish more so than we should the old covenant from the new. They absolutely are different, and praise God, we are in the new covenant, not the old. But the two have much more continuity than we think. And we will see that these pieces of covenant continuity have passed down to us in the midst of the new covenant in the church, even in 2019 today. Now, the way that this text is arranged, it seems a bit cyclical and redundant because Moses will speak of four things, but he'll do so in a repetitive fashion. The four things that he'll speak of are reassuring the people of God's faithfulness. He'll also be ensuring the importance of God's word, commissioning incarnate spiritual leadership, and warning the people against apathy that leads to idolatry. We're going to go through each one of these points, and so if you don't get them all jotted down right now, we'll revisit them. It seems redundant and cyclical because it is written in the format of a chiasm. You guys should be getting used to looking for these in Scripture. This is not just something funky that uh, seminary students learn. This is something that helps us understand because in those days it was common to write in this cyclical corkscrew fashion, pointing and directing people to the main point. Remember that chiasms are a literary tool in the pattern that looks kind of like this, A, B, C, B, A pointing to that middle theme, that main theme there in C. And in the case of this text, it looks kind of like this. The first eight verses establish the power and protection of the faithfulness of God. But then, as the bookends or boundaries of the passing on of authority, you, you have the teaching spoken of in verses 9 through 13 and 24 through 27. They bookend it. They give it the structure and the foundation. Then within that authority of Scripture, in that next level, you have the commissioning of the human leader, Joshua, and the showing of his spiritual authority in verses 14 through 15 and 23. And then centered in the text, you have the basis and motivation behind why Moses is about to write to them and sing to them the song of Moses in chapter 32. And you see this in verses 16 through 22. There is the preaching against apathy that leads to idolatry. 
And as you study this this week, because we always recommend that, that you don't just come for two hours on a Sunday and let it glance off the top of your forehead and then go about your business. You study what we study on Sunday throughout the week. And it becomes ingrained in you. And you will see this as you read through it multiple more times. You'll see that they're structuring it in a certain way. Let's look at each one of these and see what application we might have today. Does that sound good? Yeah, you guys with me? All right. First thing, let's take a look at reassuring God's people of his faithfulness. And this is one we need, amen? Verses 1 through 9 establish the context of what is about to be spoken. Moses notes his age as 120 years. And for those that hold the Torah dear, the first five books of the Bible, this number would ring out as an indicator that he is about to die. There's even debate as to whether or not he was actually biologically 120 years. But that doesn't matter for our purposes in the reading here. Remember the story of mankind's depravity and corruption in Genesis 6. God had limited the lifespan of humans to 120 years. God's response was this in Genesis 6.3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. So the fact that he is mentioned to be specifically 120 years means all finished. He's done. He's about to go step into the rest of eternity. And so Moses, being at the end of his life and no longer able to lead them in battle, that's what the going out and coming in means, needs to provide reassurance that God's people would not be forsaken. I remember when Chuck Smith passed away from Calvary Chapel, the movement that he had started, there was massive infighting and massive problems because people didn't know who would take over Calvary Chapel. The Moses figure was gone, and now what do we do? So I can only imagine what was going on in the mind of the people. These were young bucks who had stepped up. Most of them were not above the age of 40, kind of like our church. All their parents had died in the wilderness as a result of their unfaithfulness. And these young bucks stepped in and were going, wait a minute, you're, you're handing it over to us? Oftentimes I see that in this church. We're so young that so many of us go, well, well where are all the people that are going to disciple us? We're all so young. Right? We have 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds in this church that are still waiting for someone else to disciple. Well, you guys are the disciplers. Did you know that? It's not just up to a couple of us. It's up to all of us. I can only imagine what was going on in the minds of the people. And so just as he did in the beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses again mentions the defeat of Sihon and Og because this was a military defeat that wasn't completed by the first generation that wandered in the wilderness. This was a success of the generation that stood before Moses. And he reminds them, twice in these verses, Moses repeats, he will not leave you nor forsake you. God is with you. And how badly we, in 2019 in the church, like Israel, need to remember all that the Lord has done for us. Not just in the here and now, but over the last 2,000 years. This is why I love studying church history. The fact that we have access to the word of God And that Christianity has persisted even in the midst of immense persecution and martyrdom. God is so faithful to his church. Amen? Amen. Faithful men and women have passed this word down to us so that we sit in comfort and security with a roof over our head and AC coming out the vents. In 2019, here we are in Salem, Oregon, and we can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that Satan has worked overtime to destroy in silence, and yet God is so faithful that we have it in front of us. Brothers and sisters, we have a God whose faithfulness cannot be challenged. It cannot be exhausted. In spite of the sin of mankind, in spite of the failure of Christian leaders, in spite of the onslaught of the enemy, 
God's church has not moved and it will not be moved. His church and his kingdom will prevail because God is faithful. Four days ago, we celebrated our eight-year anniversary as a church. Can you imagine? Eight years we've been doing this. On Friday, I was updating my Bible study software, and I was going through my prayer list and cleaning it up that I've kept over the eight years of this church. It took me forever to go through it. Because as I scrolled through the hundreds of prayers, I saw how God has answered all of them in some way, shape, or form. I was brought to a point of tears. I literally was sitting in my office by myself and cried out to the Lord to forgive my unbelief. Because how often do I doubt that he will prove true? He's only ever proven faithful to me and my family in this church. Dear church, in what ways are you doubting his faithfulness today? In what ways are you doubting that he will come through and show himself faithful? Even if our hearts should fail, even if our bodies are overcome, God has defeated even our greatest foe. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, death and hell have been defeated. There is nothing that can overcome his love. If he's defeated that, there's nothing else that he balks at, that he's worried about. There's nothing that can overcome his faithful grace. Mission Fellowship, my dearest brothers and sisters, be strong and courageous in the Lord. Do not fear nor be dismayed. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you and goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Take heart in the reassurance of God's faithfulness today. Well, once we see that Moses has established the fact that there are people ruled, protected, and provided by the Lord himself, then he begins this cyclical chiasm for the next three points. The first of which is this. You can write this down. Moses is is ensuring the importance of God's word as the cornerstone of his people. You might say, cornerstone? I thought that was Jesus. Well, remember that the Jesus is God's word incarnate. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The voice of God, the character of God, the speech of God, these things that we have sitting in front of us in this book that we have in our hands, it is the cornerstone of his people. And here we hearken back again one last time to the fact that the book of Deuteronomy is structured in the form of a suzerain treaty, a treaty between a conquering king and his conquered vassals or citizens. And in this case, the great I am, the creator God, is the conquering king and Israel is his citizens. And in suzerain treaties of the day, there was often a clause reminding the people to refresh their remembrance of the treaty, that it would be read, often annually, to remind the conquered vassals of their response to the king that has conquered them and provided for them. This was a known part of what made up a suzerain treaty. And so Moses here states clearly that Deuteronomy is to be read regularly, that the Torah is to be read regularly. But notice when he indicates it is to be read, it is the Feast of Booths, when he says, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God to celebrate, in what? In the year of release. God desired that they use the Sabbath year to remind them of their repentance to God's goodness. This was the year of forgiveness of debts and the year where freedom was granted to fellow Israelites that had been enslaved. You can read about it back in Deuteronomy 15. It makes sense, doesn't it? That in a year where the people would need to be humbled and die to their desire of wealth and power and submit to the requirements of the law, how important would it be for them to be reminded of the conviction of God's law of justice, righteousness, grace, and love? 
It was on the day of freedom from enslavement that God would remind them that they too needed to practice freeing the oppressed in response to his redemption. It's a great word for us today on this Freedom Sunday. You cannot read the word without being convicted that we are called to act in God's justice and righteousness. And then in verses 24 through 28, Moses commands that the law of the Lord needs to be written and placed next to the Ark of the Covenant. The same ark that is seen as the place upon which heaven and earth meet, where the footstool of God's throne touches on the earth. It is, as it were, the foundation upon which his throne and reign as king is established. We live in a day where churches and parachurches and so-called spiritual leaders want to rely on business acumen, marketing, humanistic and therapeutic principles, motivational speeches, entertaining worship, self-help, to somehow convince people to pray a prayer and buy into their organizational mission. All the while, asking why our country is fading into the abyss of postmodernism and humanism, atheism, moral depravity, and theological and biblical illiteracy. Brothers and sisters, we can pray in this city and this country until we are blue in the face. We can pray for revival. We can do that until we're blue in the face. But until the church makes a priority of reading, revering, and obediently applying God's word, the heavens will be as brass and the church will lack in power. If we want revival, we must make it a priority to publicly read and teach God's word. And the churches must hold one another accountable to it. Not just the portions of the text that make us happy or encouraged, but the entire counsel of God read and taught in context unapologetically. Generations after Deuteronomy, after Israel had been taken into exile as a result of their idolatry, God again would give them grace and bring them back to the promised land. And as leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah were sent back to reestablish the worship of their forefathers, they looked to one thing to breed a contagious spirit of conviction that would lead to revival. Turn with me to the book of Nehemiah in your Bible. Go to the right there. If you've gotten to the book of Job, you've gone too far. Nehemiah chapter 8. And take a look at how Ezra and Nehemiah led revival. They didn't sit in prayer circles praying for revival. Look at what they did. Nehemiah 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Boy, do you guys think that my sermons are long? Early morning until noon. It's a four-hour sermon, folks. And they didn't even teach. They just read Scripture. Wow. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood all these names that are hard to pronounce. That's what it says in my Bible. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book. You want me to read them? I'll go ahead and read them. 
Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. All the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelatiah, Azariah, Jezebad, Hanan, Peliah, and Levite. See, that's why I didn't make you go through it the first time. Help the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They had people in the crowd helping one another to understand the law. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is how you spark revival. Look at verse 13. On the second day, they came together again. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh months and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, that's Joshua, to, that, to the day the people of Israel had not done so. In other words, they were disobedient. So what did they do? They didn't pray for revival. They repented based upon the word of God. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the, seven, uh, the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And recognize that foreigners there does not mean other ethnicities. It means people who worship other gods. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, six hours. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. We can pray for revival till we're blue in the face. If there's not repentance and obedience and a revering of the word of God, it won't matter. Only God's word can penetrate to the deepest core of our humanity and call us to repentance. For covenant continuity to occur, God's people need to make God's word their cornerstone of worship. How much of our worship of Christ is centered upon our personal opinions, our personal theology, or errant theology by well-meaning fools rather than upon the word of God that sits directly before us. Mission fellowship is the word of God, the measure we use to gauge our own faithfulness and the faithfulness of this church. If not, it needs to be. Worship is not just singing songs. That is definitely an important piece of worship, but it is not all worship. So I'm thankful for a worship leader who stands here and tells us that following in song is not all worship is, but living a life in allegiance to Christ is worship. Well, not only remembrance of God's faithfulness and the importance of God's word as the cornerstone of his people, but third, it's the commissioning incarnate spiritual leadership. Moses commissions incarnate spiritual leadership there in Deuteronomy 31. You can turn back there with me. In Deuteronomy 31, he commissions a man named Joshua. 
Israel was a theocracy, a form of government in which the people were ruled by God but led by priests and prophets. To a certain extent, Abraham and his children and grandchildren had not been established as a nation, but were more of an extended large tribe that followed Yahweh. But by the time of Moses, acting as an in-the-flesh or incarnate agent of the divine creator God, they transitioned into what's called a theocratic nation. And so from this point on, God's people have been led by incarnate spiritual leadership. With Moses exiting the scene, it wasn't as if the people of Israel could simply have a vacancy of leadership. They needed a general, a father in the faith to lead them. And so Joshua, the trusted assistant of Moses, was commissioned to do so. And we can see in verses 3 and 14 that it is the Lord who put Joshua in place. And in verse 23, God says to him, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. Now, interestingly, this section is what joins Deuteronomy with the very next book, the book of Joshua. Let me read to you from Joshua 1, 5 through 9. It's the very next book. And in Joshua 1, 5 through 9, it sounds very similar. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, Joshua. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law. In other words, lead the people in obedience that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You can see the seams used by the scribal editors to join together the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua, of Torah and of history. The authors and scribal editors are trying to make very clear to us that the authority given to Moses and his administrative oversight of the officers of the people was passed directly to Joshua. And here in Joshua, we see him administering oversight over the officers and over the people. Remember our chiasm from earlier? It actually gives us an amazing pictorial view of true God-ordained incarnate leadership. Good leadership represents the authority of Christ in the church. But it does so only as long as the people within it, the elders that lead it, are operating within the bounds of God's rule and law. The entire purpose of incarnate spiritual leadership in the midst of God's people is to preach and proclaim conviction against apathy that leads to idolatry, to assist the people in bringing about what the Apostle Paul called the obedience of the faith. My job, dear brothers and sisters, is not to make you feel happy when you go home at the end of a service. My job is to encourage you, absolutely. But my job is not to give you warm fuzzies. It's to send you out as convicted missionaries following the Lord that you plead, pledge allegiance to. It's to assist the people in bringing about the obedience of faith. And so good leadership is not outside the teaching of the law, it's inside the bounds of the law. And its job is to preach conviction and truth 
and encouragement to the people. This leadership is only put in place and established by the leading of the Spirit of God. As New Covenant believers in the church, we see this same truth. Elders within the church are put in place and affirmed by the congregation in whom dwells the Spirit of God. They, we, as elders, only bear authority in as much as we stay within the confines of Scripture and preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ, calling all of the local church over which we have oversight to true worship of Christ. I will know that we get this when I hang out with some of you and you don't treat me as if I am the highest authority in the land. When it comes to the word of God, we as elders are called to preach it. And from that perspective, we are authority in the church. But I have no other authority over any one of you and neither do any of the other elders. If we show up at your house, don't worry if your lawn is perfect or the top of your fridge is dusted because you know I can see it. Don't worry about those things. That doesn't matter. We are not authorities in those ways. We are authorities only in so much as the word of God gives us authority. I can only imagine the pain of transition that occurred in the midst of the Israelites as there was a movement of power to bring Joshua in after 40 years of Moses' leadership. But just as Israel was called to follow the godly leadership of their commissioned incarnate spiritual leaders, the church in 2019 is called to do the same. The collective body of elders in any local church are to serve the church by lovingly and obediently overseeing the administration, the preaching, and relationships within the local church. And it is truly a tension that exists between an accountable leadership and an accountable congregation. If either one is out of place, then that church will struggle and potentially fail. And perhaps this is why the writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 13, 17, it spoke of accountable congregation. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Dear flock, if you think about how you interact in this church, do you think once in a while that maybe it causes some groaning? If so, repent. Make it easy on your brothers and sisters and on us as leadership to lead you. But also, Peter then balances the exhortation of accountable congregation with accountable leadership. We don't get off the hook. This is what Peter said to the elders. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes, he is an enemy of the proud but gives grace to the humble. Are we a church that's humble? Are we elders that are humble? Are we a congregation that's humble? Now, I recognize that this may be painful if you have been hurt by previous church leadership that was acting outside the bounds of Scripture. And if that's the case, I am so deeply sorry for that. But the solution for misuse is not disuse, but proper use. 
And each of us does not get to judge the faithfulness of leadership in our own lives by our standards. We only get to judge the faithfulness of leadership by the standards of God's word. So here at Mission, we state it this way. We do our best to be Jesus-ruled, elder-led, and congregationally responsible. I am an elder within this church, but as a member of this church, I know that I am under the authority of Jesus because I am under the authority of the four other elders of this church as they oversee this church in a manner consistent with the word of God. And trust me, they lovingly keep me accountable, and I do them. My dear brothers and sisters, the evangelical Christian church is full of men and women that have become judges unto themselves and answer to no one. I am so blessed to be part of a church full of so many people that humbly desire to be shepherded by human elders who do make mistakes, yes, but will do our best to lead you in a way that glorifies Christ. And when we falter or fail as dictated by the expectation laid out in the word of God, we desire for you to hold us accountable. So thank you in advance for loving us and following us as we follow Christ. If you are one, however, that for whatever reason has not given yourself over to the authority of your brothers and sisters in membership, whether here or at another church, or you have decided to, uh, not to humbly follow the leadership of your local church, I want to ask you a very pointed question this morning. How do you know you are under the authority of Christ if you are not willingly and humbly submitting to the authority put in place within your local church? To put it more plainly, how do you know you accept the authority of Christ in your life when you have not willingly and humbly submitted to the authority of his body? To establish covenant continuity within God's people, God commissions incarnate spiritual leadership to lead as best they can in the image of Christ. Well, lastly, we see that in an effort to establish that covenant continuity and remembrance, Moses also warned the people. And so last, we see in our text today a warning against apathy that leads to idolatry. Next Sunday, we will walk through Deuteronomy 32, which is known as the Song of Moses. In verse 16, God says, I know that the people will forsake their covenant response and become apathetic and turn to idols of foreign gods. Therefore, he says in verse 19, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. The leaders were to teach the conviction of the word of God and proclaim the cautionary tale of the people of Israel so that covenant continuity was steadfast and the obedience of the faith endured. This continued steadfastness into the covenant church, new covenant church. It continued on into the church of 2019, even as Paul in the apostolic days trained his protégés like Timothy as he encouraged Timothy and Titus and many others in his ministry, specifically Timothy at the church of Ephesus, Paul said this in his letter to Timothy. He says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. In other words, giving their authority over to you. 
Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You know, it's interesting. When we were going through the elder assessment, a couple of the guys said, I don't know that I'm ready to be an elder because I just, I don't think I can live up to the expectation. And what we told them was, your main job is to show an example of humility, to show people what it's like to walk through sanctification and transformation and to do so humbly. You see, we are fallible men and the leaders of this church, men and women, we are fallible. But what we are called to do is to preach the word of God and to show progress in sanctification so that you might see that and walk with us as we humbly submit to Christ. The faithfulness of this church in the midst of covenant obedience and steadfast endurance and faithfulness to Christ, just as with Israel, is to do these same things in our church today. The continuity of the covenant, it changed with Jesus Christ because he came and gave us grace in dying on the cross for us. No longer do we have to follow the ceremonial laws of Moses, but these things still stand, a reassuring of one another of God's faithfulness, and sure, and ensuring the importance of God's word as the cornerstone of his people, commissioning incarnate spiritual leaders to lead the people, and preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ as we warn against apathy that leads to idolatry. Dear Christian brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ came to this earth to inaugurate his kingdom. For three years, he imaged the presence of that kingdom in his ministry and in his work. He then conquered death as the sacrifice for your sin and mine upon the cross of Calvary and then rose victorious in resurrection three days later. In so doing, he conquered the kingdom of darkness and redeemed you and I, redeemed you and I from its grasp and made us his citizens and adopted us as his children. And in love, we now respond to his amazing, gracious lordship. All of our lives is to therefore be worship, engaged in the covenant continuity called for by Moses and perfected by Christ. Whether it is through repentance of unbelief, whether it's through passion in studying his word or submission to godly authority, or repentance from apathy that leads to idolatry, or maybe it's through generosity in fighting against the dark scourge of slavery. In all these things, we are called to respond to all that God has given with all of our lives. And so I stand here before you today, much as Moses did with the Israelites of his day, calling for us to be obedient and to respond to God's covenant faithful love with a covenant response that shows him that we love him in return to worship with all of our lives. I want to finish this morning with one last video that emphasizes this point as we go into our time of response through communion and giving our tribute to our king through tithe and offering, prayer, repentance. And then also you can respond, as I said, you can go out to the ta table in the back in the foyer. To, uh, Sarah Campbell will be there at the back table to help you sign up for being a freedom partner giving some of your hard-earned earthly treasure in order to do God's work. And as we do these things, and as we see this video, let's respond to God's covenantal love for his people with remembrance 
and thankfulness for all he has done. If you don't know Jesus or if your walk has been apathetic and you desire to repent from it today, there's going to be elders standing in the back. They would love to pray with you and for you. They would love to talk to you about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and walk with you in that process. And so as all of us respond now to the goodness of Jesus Christ, to the goodness of God, let's have a heart that truly worships God with our lives, not just with our mouths, but with all that we are. Amen? Amen. Worship team, you can come on up as this video is playing. In our passionate love of God, in intimate devotion, we are called to engage in whole life worship. Worship that incarnates an active love for what God loves. The poor. The broken. And, and the, the nations. nations. When we worship as God's people, it brings us in line with the whole of creation. The prophet Isaiah calls us, learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Worship and justice are inextricably linked. Justice is woven into the fabric of true worship, and worship is, is the, the true, true endpoint end of justice. justice. They are simply inseparable. As a result of our worship, justice will flow out of us. It is a response, a response to what God has done for us. So what awaits those who answer God's great call to justice? A life of worship. A life of meaning. And a deeper intimacy, intimacy with Christ, Christ as we serve the marginalized. Afflicted and, and oppressed, oppressed in his name. Come worship with us. Come seek justice with us.